Amen. You may be seated. Welcome. Man, it is so good to be here on Easter morning. For those of you that are watching online, welcome. For those of you in the balcony, thank you for being in the balcony. And uh, I also want to just say that I'm thankful to our young adult ministry who are watching our children who are doing a um, children's ministry in in the children's. They, They actually went to a sunrise service this morning so they could uh, serve so the rest of you could be in here. And I really appreciate our young adults ministry. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab one. You can find one of the black Bibles in front of you. And you can find Acts chapter 13 on page 867. As we hear an incredible sermon, not from me, but from the Apostle Paul. I just have to step back for a minute as we were worshiping. I'm reminded of the first time I ever walked into a church a little over 23 years ago. I did not want to be there. Like, I grew up Jewish. Thought that people that loved Jesus were weird. And here I am walking into a church And all the pastor ever did was talk about Jesus. And I kept saying, I wish you would talk about something else. And he continued to talk about Jesus. That day I walked into that church was the beginning of what became the greatest turning point in my life. Now we all have different turning points. When you look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is the greatest turning point of all time. All of history sits on the hinge of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we have B.C. and A.D., our calendar, reflects the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The fact is we've all had turning points in our lives. Some are good, some not so good. I've had some not so good turning points in my life. When my parents got divorced at the age of 16, not a great time in my life. When my older brother died at the, at, when I was the age 19, not a great point in my life. Seven years ago when my twin brother passed away and then a year later his wife and two children were killed in a plane crash. Difficult turning points. But I've had some really good turning points. In 1997, Pam and I moved to Dallas. And actually before that, 1990, I met my wife. We got married. That was a great turning point. (laughs) Don't want to forget that one. It could be a long, cold Easter afternoon. (laughs) The birth of my boys. If you've had the blessing of having a child, you know that is a turning point in your life as you look at that child and realize this is God's gift. Incredible turning point. Moving to Dallas in 1997, getting invited to church. And then on January 11th, 1998, probably heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ for the first time. What is the gospel? The gospel just tells us that God is holy and that we are sinful. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of our sin, we have been separated from a holy God. 
But God, because of his love and his mercy and his grace, sent his son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, into this world, born as a baby, Christmas. He lived a sinless life. He lived a life we couldn't live. He died a sacrificial death on the cross in our place to atone for our sins, to, to, to uh, take the penalty for our sins. And on the third day, he was raised. And by putting our faith and trust in him, we can have eternal life. I heard that for the first time, actually, Christmas Eve service, and then I continued to hear it over the next couple of weeks. And January 11th, Pam and I got down on our knees, 1998. And we asked God, we, we actually confessed our sins, which probably took a long time. We asked God to forgive us of our sins and to save us. And he did. We confessed that Jesus is Lord, that he died on the cross, that he was raised on the third day. Talk about a turning point. Our lives have never been the same. When you come to Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul, it's his first recorded sermon. He walks into the synagogue and he explains to those that are there about this great turning point they can have. Here's the big idea of his message, and I'll put it up on the screen. Jesus' death and resurrection guarantees you can be forgiven of your sins and freed from the penalty of your sins. The resurrection of Jesus, it guarantees his death when his blood was shed, when his body was broken, he took the penalty for our sins. But now because of his resurrection, it guarantees that our sins are forgiven. So that barrier between us and God has been bridged. And so we now, because of our forgiveness of sins, our sins are now covered. That's what, where we get the word atonement. We now can have a personal relationship with him. We can spend eternity with him in heaven. And he's freed us from the penalty of our sins. That was Paul's message. And that's the message of this message today. Sounds a little redundant. Some of you may be ready for turning point. Today, April 17th, 2022, may be your turning point. Like January 11th, 1998 was our turning point. So what do we learn from this passage? First, we learn that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God promised. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God promised. Look at chapter 13. We'll start in verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Persia in Pamphylia. Now, they're in Crete and they, they go from there up to Asia Minor, which would be Turkey, and they end up in Pamphylia. And it says, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. John is John Mark, and you can learn more about that and just what that meant in Acts chapter 15. But they came uh, on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, so it, was, it would have been Saturday for them, the Sabbath, uh, they went into the synagogue and sat down. So here's Paul, the Apostle Paul, who used to be Saul of Tarsus. He was, he was, a, he was a great Jewish rabbi who had been converted. We see that in Acts chapter 9. 
He walks into a synagogue because now he's declaring the truth of the gospel. He's converted. He's had this amazing turning point in his life. And it says they went into synagogue and they sat down. After the reading, verse 15, uh, from the law and prophets, the rulers of the synagogues sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Okay, think about this. Some of you might be here for the first time. And it would be like me looking at you and say, uh, brothers, if you have a word of encouragement for everybody else, why don't you come up here and share it? For some of you, that might feel like I don't want to have to do that. I'm not good with a mic. I don't, but, but Paul, they may have known that he had studied at the feet of Gamaliel, who was one of the great Jewish teachers. And so they said, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Paul, never one to miss an opportunity, says, says, so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, not sure what that looked like. He might have just said, hush, y'all. They were in southern Turkey, so they probably said, y'all. <laughs> so Paul stood up, motioning with his hand, men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. It's like he's saying, listen up. I got something you need to hear. Now, remember, he walks into a room of Jews. And he says, I have a message for you. And then what he does is he gets ready to share the history of redemptive, of, 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 uh, of redemptive history. He, he goes through a whole chronologue of, of redemptive history. And, and notice what he says. He says, the God of this People, Israel, chose our fathers. Now, what I want to do is I want to put up on the screen five key movements in redemptive history. And what, you, what I want you to see is that God is in control. Notice this. God chose, God liberated, God gave, God gave, God raised. And you're going to see this as we read through this. Look at verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, he's looking at them, chose our fathers. He's speaking of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He chose the patriarchs and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. So he just, he just blows through Genesis. He gets to Exodus. He reminds them of the fact that they were now, they were slaves in Egypt and with an uplifted arm led them out. And for 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. During the wilderness wanderings, the nation of Israel, they complain. So he's just reviewing what happened in Numbers and Leviticus. And then he says, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. So now we've just gone through Deuteronomy. We're now in Joshua. And it talks about how God has now given them the promised land. They've crossed over the Jordan he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And you're thinking, 450 years, how'd they get that? 400 years as in bondage in Egypt, 40 years wandering in the wilderness, and it took about 10 years for Joshua to conquer the lands. And after that, he gave them judges. So now we're in the book of Judges until Samuel the prophet. So now you're in the book of Samuel. So, so Paul's just like running through the history of Israel. And remember, he's building a, He's building a rapport with the Jews who would have known this history. It would have been something they would have, they would have uh, relayed, uh, been relayed to them many times. It says, then they asked for a king. Why? 
They asked for a king because they didn't want God as a king anymore. They wanted to be like everybody else and have a human king. So God gave them Saul. Now, how did Saul work out for them? Not so great. Saul looked good on the outside, but that was about it. Saul, a man of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, when God had removed him because of his ongoing rebellion, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. So what you see is this redemptive history coming to this point, but it's not at a point yet where I've now raised up David, a man after his own heart. And this would have caused all those in the room to sit up because they loved David. David was the great king. Many thought David was the Messiah. So you see these key movements. God chose the patriarchs. God liberated Israel from, from Egypt. God gave Israel their land. God gave Israel the king they wanted. And then finally, God raised up David, his king, a man after his own heart. But was David perfect? No. There was a little thing that happened in 2 Samuel chapter 11. When all kings were supposed to be in battle, David wasn't. He was hanging out on the roof of his house. And he sees a woman bathing. And I'm going to stop there. Because we have children in the room. They ended up having a child. See, David was going to bring about a greater David. And so what we see then is it says, after he says, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior as he promised. Now we're getting close to the pinnacle of, of redemptive history. From David, from the loins of David came many kings that failed just as much, causing the people to desire a greater king. And finally, the Messiah who, who the Jews had been waiting for for centuries and centuries. Finally, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem man back to himself. And so we see, it says, it says of this man's offspring, God brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised, so now we get to this point. And so what Paul does is he, is he does a little excursus. He's, people are wondering who this John the Baptist guy is that everybody keeps talking about, that keeps baptizing people and keeps talking about everybody's got to repent. So he tells us in 24 and 25 about this John the Baptist. It says, before his coming, speaking of Jesus, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Speaking of this Messiah, speaking of Jesus, the Savior of the world. Paul is saying, listen, all of redemptive history points to Jesus. It points to Jesus. God brought Israel a Savior and his name is Jesus. And now Paul starts to draw in the strings. He says, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us, to us 
has been sent the message of this salvation. This Jesus who has come, he is the one that's going to provide us salvation, eternal life. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are uh, the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Now, I got to stop right there. Because Paul now has just stepped on the toes of the Jews. He's saying, the prophets prophesied about a Messiah who would come. But the Jews, who were supposed to be the religious people, they didn't listen. And when Jesus came, they rejected him. Paul's explaining all this, and you've got to realize where Paul is coming from. He's one of the most learned Jews of the day. He studied at the feet of Gamaliel. I said it right that time. That's, that word always is, turn to your neighbor and just say Gamaliel three times. Gamaliel, Gamaliel. Actually, it's not that bad. All right. Men of Israel, listen to me. Bring your eyes up. We, we used to say that to the kids and, and when, you know, like, put your eyeballs right here. Bring your eyeballs here. So what he does is Paul now, he gives a fourfold confession of a Christian. First of all, he says in, he says in uh, verse 28, well, actually verse 27, he says, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. They condemned this Jesus, even though he was without sin. Look at verse 28. And though they found no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate, who is the governor of, of, of Jerusalem, of Judea, they asked him to have him executed. They executed Jesus. He was sinless. They found no sin in him. That is the first confession. But then look at verse 29. It says, and when they carried, had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree. We know that as a cross. Crosses come from trees. They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. He was buried. Then you get to verse 30. One of the greatest, let me say it, buts in the Bible. But God. But God raised him from the dead. This is Paul who was a persecutor of Christians, who hated Christians, who had gotten letters from the religious leaders to, to, to go, to, um, to go and, and have the Jews persecuted. And, and, and he held the, he held the uh, clothing of those that stoned Stephen to death. And now all of a sudden, because of this turning point in his life, he's saying, listen, you guys have got to understand. This was the Messiah that you had murdered, but now God has raised him from the dead. And there's a reason not only did he raise him from the dead, but he's been seen by many witnesses. Look at verse 31. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. It wasn't that just Jesus was raised from the dead and then just disappeared. He was seen by many. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I want to read this because it gives you a real idea of how many people saw him. 
Paul says, for I delivered to you, he's, he's writing to the church in Corinth, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. The Old Testament scriptures said that there would be a Messiah who would die for their sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and to the 12, then to the 12, the 12 disciples, apostles, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, though some have died. Why does he say that? Some are still alive. Go ask them. They saw him also. They saw the resurrected Jesus. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And he's recounting on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, where Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, had appeared to him. And now, finally, Paul tells the audience why he is there. Look at verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God had promised. There must have been a stunned silence in the room. This Jesus, who we crucified, he is the fulfillment of all that God had promised. But here's the thing. God's been in control this whole time. So the question becomes, so what? What's the big deal with that? What does that mean for me? Glad you asked. That brings us to this. Jesus' death and resurrection means we can be forgiven by God. Jesus' death and resurrection means we can be forgiven by God. Now, he goes from the end of verse 33 down to verse uh, 35, where he, 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 he recounts a couple Old Testament passages about the fact that the Messiah would not see corruption, that he'd be raised from the dead. And then he says in verse 36, for David... After he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, meaning he, he died, and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption, meaning he stayed in the grave. He didn't get up out of the grave. He decayed. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. This Jesus who God raised up didn't see corruption. Why? Because he was raised from the dead. But then look at verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers... That through this man, this man Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. I don't know about you, but that's good news. Why? Uh, for a minute, think about everything you've ever done wrong. Okay, that's enough. Because it can go for a long time. I mean, think of your words, your thoughts, your actions, your attitudes. Things that you may feel guilty about. Maybe even things that you've never even told anybody about. God knows all of that. But because of Jesus, his sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection, all of that can be forgiven. The greatest gift God has given us through his son Jesus is forgiveness. 
The problem, though, is often we don't think God would forgive us or God could forgive us. Why? Because we think that our sins are so bad. But, but that's because we're not thinking like God is, like, as God would. See, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts greater than our thoughts, Isaiah 55 tells us. And so we don't think as the creator of the universe would think, which is good. See, it's a wrong understanding of God to think that he could never forgive us. Wouldn't that be a terrible place to be? It's like, I'm just like, I could never be forgiven of these sins. And like, I just now gotta, I've got to live in that for the rest of my life. But that's what Jesus changes. That's the turning point I've been talking about. See, God sent his son as an act of grace to, to die and to be raised so we can be forgiven of our sins. We've got to be careful about having a limited view of forgiveness. And often it's because we're mired in our guilt. Let me give you a couple wrong views of forgiveness. A couple wrong views of forgiveness. Here's the first one. Delayed forgiveness. I'll forgive you, but not yet. I'm just going to let you sit in my anger for a while, and then when I feel like it, I'll forgive you. That's not the way God forgives us. How about this? Conditional forgiveness. I'll forgive, but first I want to see what you're going to do. How are you going to change? Ah, my eye's going to be on you. My foot's going to be tapping. How about this? Temporary forgiveness. I'll forgive you, but like a soccer ref with a red card in his back pocket, you do one thing, I'm pulling it out. I'm red carding you. I mean, aren't you thankful that God is not like that to us? That he forgives us when he forgives us, he, he forgives us as far as east is from west. In fact, let me, let me just put um, up on the screen for you uh, uh, first, uh, uh, excuse me, Psalm 103. Psalm 103. Notice what it says. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west, I'm thankful he doesn't say as far as the north is from the south. Because if you take a globe and you go from the south pole up to the north pole, then where do you keep going? You start going south again. But if you take that globe and you start going to the west, you just keep going and going. As far as the east is from the west. The fact is, because of what Christ did on the cross, because he was our substitute, he paid the debt that he did not owe because we had a debt we could not pay. His death satisfied God's requirement for justice because God is a just God and he must punish sin. So he punished Jesus in our place. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. By faith, you can be forgiven. In fact, listen to what Micah 7 says. Micah 7, 18 and 19. Who is a God like you? That's a rhetorical question pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread on our inequities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depth of the sea. Think about that. Into the depth of the sea. Now, have anybody ever lost like a ring in the ocean, like you're out there playing and all of a sudden your ring just slips off or you, you drop something. 
that's in the shallows of the sea. You might have a chance to find it. Or some guy with one of those metal detectors is going to find it, and you'll find it on eBay. But, but this is speaking about in the depths of the sea. It's like you're on a ship out in the middle of the ocean, and your ring drops off. It's like he buries it into the depths of the sea. That's the beauty And this is only because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Let me ask you, have you received that type of forgiveness? Let me say something else that I think is so important. Some of you may have sinned against somebody this last week or month or year. What you need to do instead of feeling the weight of that, Get with them. Get with anybody that's been affected by it and sit down with them, look them in the eye and admit, I've sinned against you. Forgive me. Forgive me. See, it it takes the weight off of you. And when we've been forgiven by Jesus, I'm telling you, it just, it, it brings an incredible weight off of us. We don't have to now wallow in the guilt and shame of our sins. Jesus has taken all of that. Hallelujah. Remember that Jesus' death and resurrection means we can be forgiven by God. But we also learn this. Jesus' death and resurrection means we can be freed by God. Look at verse 39. And by him, by Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. That's awesome. We could be freed from everything. Well, almost everything. There's four things we can't be freed from. So I want you to, if you're going to write, take a notes, write this down. Four things you can't be freed from. There are no four things. <laughs> Notice what it says here. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Like we think that keeping the law of Moses will help us to be freed. But that just condemns us. It just reminds us we can't keep the law. But because of the grace of Jesus Christ, we, we've been freed from everything. We've been freed from, from any addictions or struggles or failures. That word freed, it's a judicial term. It means to be justified. Some of your translations might say, say we've been justified from everything. It means declared not guilty. And so now when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. In fact, we see that in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Let me just put that on the screen. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. It's what Martin Luther called the great exchange where he exchanges our sinfulness and he places that on Jesus on the cross and he takes the perfect righteousness of Christ and lays them on us. So now when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, but he sees Christ. So now we can have a deep abiding relationship with Jesus, with Jesus and it means that when we die and we will all die, We can spend eternity in heaven because that gap has been bridged. We are freed from guilt, addiction, past struggles. The fact it is because of Jesus that we're now accepted by God. Let me just tell you the importance of being accepted. 
we're now free from a performance-based religion. How many religions, it's all about performance, what you do, what you don't do. Man, it's exhausting. How do you keep up with it? I'll never forget. I mean, first time we went to church and then I was playing golf at Glen Eagles a couple, about a week later with a guy that invited us to church. I'll never forget. It was on the third hole. I'm a terrible golfer, but man, it was like, I remember this. Probably the only shot I ever remember. And, and he said to me, uh, he said, what did you think of church on Sunday? And I just said to him, I said, I don't like religion. And he said, Bill, this is not about religion. It's about a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's about a relationship. See, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, I've been freed from performance. I don't have to perform to be accepted. All that needs to be done has been accomplished. That's why Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. When he died, when he breathed his last, he said, it is finished. It's been accomplished to tell us die. My freedom is not rooted in my performance. Your freedom is not rooted in your performance. Aren't you thankful? Your freedom is rooted in your position with Christ. Our boys are part of our family. They're not part of our family because of their performance. They're part of our family because of their position. Christianity is not performance-based. That's freedom. But this freedom is conditional. And some of you are thinking, oh, I knew there'd be a catch. It's conditional. Notice what he says here in verse 39. And by him, everyone who believes is freed. That's the condition. Unless you believe in the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, unless you turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ, there is no freedom. There is no forgiveness of sins. To believe in Jesus means to put your faith and trust in him. It's to surrender control of your life and to give it to him. There must be a turning point where you're, you're walking along and you're thinking, man, I'm just too sexy for my shirt. And it's time to get rid of that shirt because as you get older, it gets too tight. All right? And, and now you, it's, it's a turning. It's a turning from sin and self, and it's turning to Jesus. That's the turning point that this whole message is about. Have you turned? Has there been a defining moment when you've turned from sin and self and turned to Jesus as your only hope for eternal life? That's what Paul was declaring to those in that synagogue. And that's what I'm declaring to you. You can be forgiven all your sins. You can be freed from what? Everything. But only takes place if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to have our worship team come up here. And we're going to baptize four people this morning, which what a great opportunity to baptize on Easter. Because baptism reflects that we've died to our old life and we've been raised to walk in newness of life. Baptism doesn't save. It's just a picture. So when they cross their arms and we put them down under the water, it's a picture of dying like Jesus died, but being raised. The fact is each one of these have already embraced Jesus as Lord. 
And because of their union with Christ, they will be raised. They're each proclaiming that there was a turning point in their lives where they turned from Jesus, or they turned from themselves, and they turned to Jesus. My prayer is if there's anyone here today that hasn't turned to Jesus, that today you would. So you can have assurance of eternal life. You'd be forgiven of your sins. You'd be freed, especially from this performance-type religion that just doesn't do anything but just exhaust you. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. The fact that we've been freed, what a blessing. Father, it's because of our union with with Christ that in the last days we will be raised to have eternal life. And I pray, I pray for anyone today that doesn't know Jesus that you would would move in their hearts even right now. And I pray if there's people that maybe have known these truths but have just wandered from these truths, Lord, that they would be convicted by that. They'd be broken by that. They confess that to you even right now. And they turn back to you. Maybe April 17th, 2022 would be the day where they finally stop trying to perform and just rest in the finished work of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray.